HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Greetings from Cheeselandia, where cheese lovers, cheese makers, cheese nibblers, and cheese curious are all welcome. Find the really good stuff, meet the makers, and connect with fellow travelers on the cheese way of life. Visit wisconsincheese.com to learn more and sign up. Breakfast. One egg. Hard-boiled. One glass white wine, and one black coffee. Lunch, two eggs, hard-boiled is best, but poached if necessary, two glasses white wine, and black coffee. Dinner, five-ounce steak grilled with black pepper and lemon, remainder of the white wine, one bottle allowed per day, and, of course, black coffee. You've just heard a dramatic reading of The Wine and Egg Diet, originally published in Helen Gurley Brown's book Sex and the Single Girl, The Unmarried Woman's Guide to Men in 1962, and later published in 1977 in Vogue magazine. And though that may have sounded like a relic of a darker time, diet culture is still alive and well. According to the CDC, In the years between 2013 and 2016, just about one-third of American adults reported having dieted in hopes of losing weight. And with so many people in the U.S. to sell to, it's no wonder that we have diet supplements, quote, clean recipes, and wellness lifestyles pushed on us from all angles. So today we're challenging diets, their efficacy, their underlying logic, and their goals. Because at HRN, food is more than a means to an end. I'm Hannah Forden, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. Up first, we're dismantling diet culture from the bottom up as Zoe Denkla tackles the basics of nutrition. When we talk about food and nutrition, calories are often on the table, front and center on all food labels mentioned in every PSA about health and diet. Calorie is king in our language surrounding food consumption, but where did this measurement even come from? 
To answer this question, I talked to Eric Ravison, who specializes in human physiology and works at the Pennington Biomedical Center down in Louisiana. Maybe understanding the origins of these measurements could empower a normal person to actually grasp what was going on in their body when it comes to nutrition. A calorie came from physics. It's the energy necessary to warm up a gram of water by one degree Celsius. And it's not going to help anyone if I tell them that. And that's just one way to measure a calorie. They can also be calculated by lighting some food item on fire and seeing how hot that fire burns. The hotter it gets, the more calories there are. Fair warning, this is not to be tried at home. These experiments are conducted in a controlled, scientific environment, in something called a calorimeter. Basically, a tool with an enclosed chamber that allows scientists to burn materials and measure the heat of the fire. This is largely what our caloric system is based on today. In 1887, this scientist Charles Outwater took one gram of carbs, protein, and fat, lit each one on fire, and then measured the heat they gave off. Outwater found the caloric density of each. Fat was roughly 9 calories, carbs were 4, protein was 4. Out of these results, the 449 system was born, meaning today we don't have to throw every food item into a burn chamber. Instead, we measure the fat, carbs, and protein and get a pretty good estimate of how many calories are in that item. So Atwater developed the modern calorie, but he was one of many during this period trying to figure out how food impacts the human body. Lavoisier is really the uh, scientist who put metabolism on, on the map. He realized that a candle, if you have no oxygen, cannot burn. He said in, in French, la vie est une combustion, means life is combustion. And life is combustion. Basically, you burn these energy substrate, your fat, your carbohydrate, to produce the energy. And to do that, you use oxygen and you, you produce CO2. It's only at the turn of the 20th century that scientists became interested in, you know, the calories that we eat. Why do people need to eat more calories than others? The simple answer is that they are more active. Of course, you know, workers, you know, digging the, the dirt and all that need much more energy than people lying on a bed. So how is metabolism measured? Scientists like Dr. Ravison use something called a metabolic chamber, which is quite literally an enclosed space roughly the size of a small hotel room. People are in there anywhere from a few hours to a few days. During these quote-unquote stays, scientists pump oxygen in and then analyze the air flowing out. By doing this, they can measure both someone's oxygen consumption and the production of CO2 and nitrogen in a bunch of different scenarios, like sleeping, sitting, and exercising. The ratio between these two measurements give us a sense of how much energy is spent during any given activity. There are actually only 30 in the world, so it's not exactly like we can all hop in this chamber and figure out our exact metabolic rate. But there are so many factors which changes your metabolism, even in resting condition these measurements of metabolism are, are not so easy and not so available. It's not like measuring weight and height. Genetically or biologically, you have some people who are more efficient than others. For example, 
the highest prevalence of obesity is in the, the island of Nauru, in the Pacific island. These populations have been subjected to periods of feast and famine, and they have developed thrifty mechanism or thrifty genotype to be uh, resistant to these periods of famine. It, it was only the fatter babies who survived the periods of famine. And the skinny babies or the skinnier babies were more likely to die. And this this is over generation and generation. This is a, an evolution to be thrifty. Meaning this population has evolved to have slower metabolism for survival. Dr. Ravison likes to think of it like a car engine. Two cars could be exactly the same size, and yet one might get 25 miles to the gallon when the other gets 50. In spite of size, these cars need drastically different amounts of fuel. Some scientists believe creating a standardized system for caloric consumption like the BMI is a bit of a fool's errand. The body mass index relies on the height and weight data of people from all over the world. This data is averaged to create charts where someone can plug in their height and get a quote-unquote healthy weight projection and an idea of how much fuel their body needs. They don't take into account the wide range of genetic and environmental variation throughout the global population. So BMI is a real guesstimate. As we'll hear in our final segment, there's truly no such thing as one-size-fits-all when it comes to calorie consumption. Some diets aren't designed for weight loss at all. They aim to heal. Did you know irritable bowel syndrome, aka IBS, affects approximately 1 in 10 people? No? Well, buckle in and fold up your tray table because Sarah Mathis is taking us all the way to Melbourne to hear about the diet that changed IBS treatment across the globe. When my gastro prescribed a low FODMAP diet to address my IBS, I was overwhelmed. Onions, garlic, dairy, select legumes, wheat, stone fruits, and more got kicked to the curb. Gone were my carefree days of chucking food in the cart. Instead, I found myself referencing charts and looking up serving sizes mid-aisle. To dig deeper, I took to the internet. There I found Monash University, the Australian institution that pioneered the low FODMAP diet. It's also still the leading source of FODMAP info today. I wanted to know just how this diet came to be, so I called up Jane Muir, head of translational nutritional science in their gastroenterology department. Well, if I go back in time to really, you know, 16 or so years ago when we were trying to uh, work out candidate triggers that might be um, triggering symptoms in our patients, really about half the patients who would come to the clinic would end up with this diagnosis of IBS. And in those days, there was, wasn't a lot that could be done. There really wasn't, you know, a, a lot of treatment options for them. So it was very frustrating for both physicians and for patients and for all of us managing these people. To address the issue at hand, the scientists at Monash turned their attention to sugars. For decades, patients and scientists had suspected that certain sugars, like lactose and fructose, might trigger symptoms even in healthy people. But Monash did something nobody had done before. So we grouped them all together under the term FODMAP, um, an umbrella term, and 
we decided we would study them as one group. FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. In layman's terms, they're short-chain carbohydrates that can ferment and draw water into your gut. This can cause the bloating, gas, and gastrointestinal distress that characterize IBS. So those foods on my no-no list, they're high in one or sometimes multiple FODMAPs. Garlic and onions, those are full of oligosaccharides. Stone fruits, major contributors of polyols. My beloved mangoes, they're high in monosaccharides. When the scientists at Monish tested the low FODMAP diet, they found that it improved IBS symptoms in a whopping 75% of people. And because it's using food, it's really just manipulating your diet. It's very acceptable to patients, so it's a sort of a non-drug approach. According to a Harvard article, it is the most frequently prescribed food plan to relieve symptoms of IBS. And Dr. Muir thinks that the concept behind the diet may be helping more people than even know about FODMAPs. She suspects it may be an alternate explanation for the gluten-free diet fad among those without celiac disease. Gluten and FODMAPs travel together in food. So wheat, for example, which is gluten-containing, is also high FODMAP. Gluten-free grains are also very low in FODMAP. So by choosing gluten-free, you're actually choosing a low FODMAP diet. And so we, we think most of the symptom improvement people get are actually because they've gone low FODMAP and got nothing to do with the gluten at all. So the low FODMAP diet just might be the most popular diet you've never heard of. I've definitely experienced some of the promised benefits. But avoiding FODMAPs without cooking all my meals myself was pretty much impossible. Try ordering anything at a restaurant without onions, garlic, or cheese, not to mention all the other restrictions. And connecting with friends over a meal is not something I'm willing to give up. During our call, I learned that Jane and her team designed an app to help patients navigate the diet on the go. So perhaps there's hope for me yet. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Greetings from Cheeselandia, the ultimate community of cheese lovers. Cheeselandia is your golden pathway to the world of Wisconsin artisanal cheese, where you can immerse yourself in a vibrant society of cheese, in real life and online. Join this community of fellow travelers from all 50 states on the Cheeseway of life and enjoy member-only events. Attend the School of Cheese, pursue cheese quests, and apply to host your own Cheeselandia house party. Visit wisconsincheese.com slash Cheeselandia to join. Welcome back to Meet and 3. In lieu of unmarried women's guides, these days diet culture has a new host, social media. Next, Brianna Brady speaks to a professor of psychology and health science at Rutgers University, Charlotte Marquis, about fad diets, social media, and how it all might affect our relationships with our food and our bodies. Almost all dieting is fad dieting because 
almost all dieting is time limited based on terms or instructions that are not sustainable and they tend to follow trends that come and go or at least repackaged across time. Most of us can probably name some eating trends we've seen come and go. Whole30, keto, Weight Watchers, the grapefruit diet, paleo, juice cleanse, intermittent fasting. The list goes on. It's worth saying that when we talk about these eating trends as diets, we mean a time-limited change in our eating behaviors for the purposes of losing weight. Which, on the whole, isn't something Charlotte thinks is good for us. It tends to only result in weight loss very, very short term. It tends to damage people's relationship with food. It makes them not enjoy food as much. It creates um, this sense of surveillance about what they eat and how they look that is maladaptive. And over the long haul, we know that multiple attempts at dieting may be detrimental to physical health. And it also is one of the greatest predictors of eating disorders. So what is it about these programs and prescriptions that we find so enticing? We see a lot of messaging and the internet and social media exacerbate this, I think, that suggests that if we can change our physical appearance in some way by losing weight, for example, then we can be happier and we can change our whole life. Not all of the food content on social media is about dieting. There's the stuff that's always been there. The weird cooking videos or the pictures of that fancy restaurant your friend went to. But the dieting stuff is not hard to find. What's particularly concerning about this messaging is not just that it's everywhere, but that it's so often inaccurate because social media has made it possible for anyone to offer anyone else advice. If you do think from viewing social media that there are certain ways you should be eating and you feel inadequate because you're not following these prescriptions or whatever some influencer has suggested is is a good way to eat, um, then this can be, you know, kind of upsetting and demoralizing and I think unnecessarily so. Some of these dieting posts are paid content. They're celebrities hawking appetite suppressants or meal replacement shakes. But there are also trends that aren't focused on specific products. The example I think of the most is like how I eat in a day type posts where you would want to see how someone who looks amazing and seems like the you know image of health, how they actually eat. Um, but they're usually really toxic in that it's this form of self-presentation that we see in social media that probably doesn't perfectly align with reality. I looked up some of these posts. Actually, I went down a deep, dark TikTok hole. And not all of them seem bad. Some of them are even positive posts from people who are in recovery from eating disorders. But I can also see what she means. What is a fam? Okay, this is a what I eat in a day that helped me lose 37 pounds. Guys, I lost two more pounds. Every time I see a what I eat in a day video, I think, is that really all I ate? I feel like I eat so much more than everybody else. Hi friends, so today I'm like, eating like Kylie Jenner for the day, according to herself. Want to know what I really eat in a day? Let me show you. What I eat in a day as a signed model working in Tokyo, Japan. 
TikTok owns that there is some danger involved in these kinds of posts. At the top of the hashtag what I eat in a day page, they have this message. At TikTok, while we value creative expression, our foremost priority is keeping users safe. If you or someone you know are experiencing concerns around body image, food, or exercise, it's important that you know help is out there and that you are not alone. They then share the contact for the National Eating Disorders Association helpline. So, given this message and everything else, how worried should we be about this? Charlotte has done research concerning body image issues and social media use among teen girls. And what really seems to matter is how girls use social media. They oftentimes just send friends messages or share pictures of themselves and their friends. And that seems actually pretty benign. But when girls spend time following celebrity culture or watching beauty tutorials or um, just focusing on appearance-based information, that seems to be much more detrimental to their own body image. We may not all be teenage girls, but this still might feel familiar. It's hard not to want those images that we're getting of beauty and health for ourselves. But maybe we can pivot. When it comes to food, maybe we can focus on what's tasty instead, on foods and recipes that delight us. For Charlotte, that means... Mexican food is always my favorite food. (laughs) I grew up in California, so we um, ate a lot of tacos and burritos and chips and guacamole. As for me, maybe I'll share that soup recipe that makes me feel cozy or the lentil bolognese I make every other week. It's pretty delicious, but I don't think it'll become a fad. Eating is not only a human necessity, it's also a source of pleasure. But for many, eating foods can be associated with guilt and anxiousness, especially during the holiday season. Next, Amanda Silva talks to an expert about relieving some of these worries. When I was nine years old, um, my pediatrician referred me to see a dietitian. And I can vividly remember everything about that doctor's visit. I remember the diet that she put me on, right? I remember the number of breads I was allowed to have each day, how much fat I could have, how many desserts I was limited to each week. And this was really that first time that I experienced stress and anxiety around what I was eating. That is Katie Zanville, a non-diet registered dietitian and nutrition therapist. Katie doesn't believe in weight loss diets because she saw firsthand what it can do to a child. Diets are not effective in the long term. Studies have shown that participants who remain in weight loss programs, they usually lose approximately 10% of their weight. However, one third to two thirds of that weight is actually regained within one year. And almost all of it is regained within five years. So dieting actually causes weight gain in the long term. Genetics, life experiences, a history of food insecurity, and past trauma are among the reasons why people develop a complicated relationship with food. But to Katie, the influence of diet culture and the wellness industry is the most prevalent reason. 
The more we are unhappy with our bodies, the more products they sell. What's wrong with the BMI, right? There's no like one normal weight that everybody needs to be at. There will always be body diversity. There will always be body diversity. So instead of pursuing this weight goal, um, which we know we can't all achieve, like if you want to pursue health, maybe focus on the health behaviors instead of just pursuing weight loss. According to Katie, eating healthy means being flexible. It means tuning into our hunger and fullness cues and associating pleasure and satisfaction with food. Here are her ideas about how to manage eating anxiety during the holiday season. But I'd say overall, holiday celebrations are such a small portion of our life, and they're not likely to have a really big impact on our physical health and well-being for the average person. So you have permission to eat however you want over the holidays. Um, some specific tips, though, I would not recommend fasting all day before holiday meals. I think that um, restriction is the number one reason why people end up binging. Um, I also wouldn't recommend trying to like healthify your favorite dishes, you know, eat what truly sounds good to you. Binging is never ideal. So introducing holiday foods in your everyday life could prevent you from overeating. This may feel like it's the only time of the year that we can eat holiday foods. But the truth is that you can eat turkey and stuffing and latkes and cookies. You can have those foods year round. This Christmas season, allow yourself to enjoy the banquet. After all, as some would say, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Brianna Brady, Zoe Denkla, Sarah Mathis, Amanda Silva, and Junie Terry. Meet and Three is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Hannah Forden. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson, and our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and Three is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story you'd like to tell us about or you just want to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.